0: So Peter had been encouraging his readers to walk in hope because of their glorious salvation. Now, as you read 1 Peter, and hopefully along with the the messages that Pastor Bill is preaching, you are reading along also and reading several times throughout uh, this this, uh, little letter. And as you're reading, no doubt you can uh, ascertain the prominent theme of hope. Uh, Hope is a very uh, pivotal point in Peter's writing. And it's important for us to to understand that when we read the word hope in the Bible, it's not sometimes the way we use the word today. We use the word today to sometimes express our hope that we get that job that we interviewed for. Or our hope that our favorite team wins the big game. But in the word of God, hope is the assurance. It's the uncertainty that we can have by virtue of the promises of God. It's our living hope. And that's why Jesus, through the resurrection, is called our living hope. Because he has gone before us. We have the certainty, the assurance of life eternal, and that is the hope that we could have despite the trials that we may be going through. Now, Peter already reminded his readers, as if they needed to be reminded, that they were going through uh, trials that grieved them, and that word grieved actually is uh, a bit mild, uh, in our English language, uh, the New American Standard translates it the trials that distressed them. Uh, these were the days of the Emperor Nero. And so Peter's readers were enduring uh, the early stages of the persecution of this madman, Nero. You may remember that it was Nero who actually burned Christians alive so as to illuminate his gardens in the evening. And so this was the the persecution, the distress that uh, Peter was uh, addressing to his audience. And so he was encouraging them not only to walk in hope because of their glorious salvation. But now he encourages them to walk in holiness in imitation of their heavenly father. And so Peter gives to us four building blocks on how to think right in this ungodly, unholy world. How to strive to be clean while we live in a polluted world. Maybe you've seen the poster, it's hard to soar with eagles when you fly with turkeys. Uh, that's true. Uh, during this earthly pilgrimage, in a world that is constantly throwing all sorts of spiritual curveballs at us as we seek to walk after the Lord, Peter now gives us four building blocks on how to think rightly how to live above this junky world in which we are a part. And it's important how we think, by the way, because as the Proverbs remind us, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It does matter what we think, because what we think becomes the the raw materials from which our actions are derived. Or as the late Howard Hendricks used to say, doctrine is dynamic. It does matter that we think right because our thinking then overflows to our behavior. And so Peter gives us four pillars that will support a godly, holy life in the midst of a junky world. So let's look at them together. First, We see in verse 13 and again in verse 17 uh, that we are to think eternally, think eternally. Verse 13 reads, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope, there's that word again, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Peter says, in light of that glorious salvation that he was rehearsing in the first uh, 12 verses or so of this book, in light of that, prepare your minds for action. The, the Greek uh, here is, is an a interesting verbal image that uh, Peter gives us. Literally, it's gird up the loins of your mind. That is to say that you are about to engage in a serious work. You don't want to stumble. You don't want to fall. So therefore, grab your robe, lift it, and tuck it under your belt so that as you engage in this serious exercise that you won't trip or fall along the way. That's... That's the idea of the phrase, gird up the loins of your mind, preparing your minds for action. Pull your thoughts together. Have a disciplined mind. And then he continues, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. Peter is saying, upon that future day when Jesus returns or that day when you will See and be in the presence of Jesus. He will lavish you with grace. And he said, Set your mind on the grace that will be revealed to you upon that day. Now, there's already grace that has been revealed to us. In fact, in Ephesians 1, it says that it has been graciously or lavishly revealed to us at the moment of salvation. That grace enables us to, to enjoy the benefits of salvation though we deserve death and separation from God. It's, it's by grace, it's God giving us what we don't deserve that we have been brought into a, a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have, as Paul Uh, indicates in Colossians 1. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And yet Peter reminds them now that upon that future day that we are to place All of our hope on the future grace that will be revealed to us when we see him as he is. So that with all the grace that we revel in at this point, there is more grace that will be bestowed upon us when we see him face to face. And so Peter encourages his readers to think eternally. Yes, you live for today. You certainly keep an eye on the present. But at the same time, he reminds them that we should keep an eye on the future. Set your mind fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So think soberly, Peter writes. Our present actions and decisions should be governed by our future hope of grace that we will revel in at the coming Of Jesus Christ. So you see what Peter is saying? When we begin to think in terms of the future, when we begin to think eternally, our focus on the present persecutions and trials will begin to drift, will begin to fade. Some of you with longer memories might remember that little chorus that we used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, as we keep our eyes focused on the prize, the the hurdles, the trials, the, the tumult that we face today will not overwhelm us, will not consume us uh, will will not control us to the point where uh, we uh, lose our focus on tomorrow so we are to prepare our minds for action and and why well verse 17 gives us another motivation as we drop down and read verse 17, it says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, once again, he called them aliens early on. Now he says that their time here on earth is an exile. And that's because our future home is where? In glory, yes. Paul in Philippians 3 said our citizenship is in heaven. We're just pilgrims passing through. So we're to keep an eye on the future, we're to to think eternally, and we're to think eternally because one day when we stand before God, he will impartially judge us. Now, don't misunderstand because this judgment is not a judgment of heaven or hell. That question has already been determined. We are a child of God by faith, but this judgment based on our deeds will be a judgment of future rewards. And the basis of those rewards will be uh, our actions, our conduct, our behavior in the flesh as we walk this earthly pilgrimage. Now, don't get too uh, caught up or or, uh, overly excited or depressed about this notion because ultimately these rewards in the form of crowns we're going to be casting at the feet of Jesus anyway. But uh, I think it's important for us to realize that uh, the Apostle Paul, as you read through his letters, was motivated by the desire to be rewarded by Christ for his obedience in the faith. And so Peter says, if we're going to live godly lives in this junky world, we have to live uh, thinking eternally. We have to live eternally, as one of my seminary professors used to quote he used to say, with eternity's values in mind, Lord, with eternity's values in mind. Make each thought captive to the obedience of Christ with eternity's values in mind. Secondly, Peter says in verses 14 to 16 that we are not only to think eternally, but we are also to think holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We're to think eternally, we're to think holy. So Peter begins by saying, do not be conformed to your former image. Do not be conformed to your uh, former way of life. In other words, we are not to be poured into the world's mold. You know, it wasn't too long ago, uh, just a a few weeks, actually, we were all baking Christmas cookies. And uh, if you uh, are like... Our our family, your Christmas cookies took several different shapes. There were probably uh, snowflake cookies and angel cookies and Christmas tree cookies and snow person's cookies. And so from this lump of dough, okay, it took the shape of whatever that dough was squeezed into well, we're told here by Peter, we're not to live that way. We're not to be poured into the world's mold. And that's a challenge, isn't it? And that's what he calls to be conformed. The word conformed means an outward attention to, for, for public uh, display. It's, it's something focused on the outward. Uh, it's like to, to wear a mask. It, it covers the real you. But the Apostle Paul uses another word. In English, it sounds much like the word conform, but it's vastly different. In Romans 12, 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, are you ready, your mind. See, it does matter how you think. It does matter what you think, because what you think will determine how you behave. So we are to think holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, Pastor Bill touched on this a few weeks ago. Hebrew scholars believe that the root word of the word holy is a word which means to cut, C-U-T, to cut, to separate, to set aside. It later came to be understood to be set aside For a specific purpose. And Peter quotes the Old Testament in quoting God. He quotes the the law in Leviticus 20, in verse 26, for example. He says that we are to be holy as God is holy. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. I have, here it is, set you apart from all other people that you should be mine. So for us to be holy, it means that we don't live according to the world's mold. And that's a struggle, isn't it? The struggle sometimes is to live on that proverbial fence with one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And we tend sometimes to act according to the surroundings you know if we're with a certain group of people we we tend to act on the the worldly side if we're in church on sunday morning we tend to put on our our church face and that's that's a struggle that that we all live with and peter encourages us to understand the fact that we have been set apart for a specific purpose remember years ago when i was pastoring up in syracuse I was doing a series of messages on the attributes of God. And the week before, I had touched on the theme of the fact that God was holy. And I emphasized the fact that holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And I remember we were having a, a church dinner, and um, my bride, in addition to bringing something um, as, a, as an entree, uh, also baked uh, a tray of my favorite things—chocolate chip cookies—and they just came out of the oven. You know, they had oh, you—you you know, you, you've experienced it, right? You've walked into the room, and there they were, golden brown, with the the fragrance that just. F- filled that that room and and they were they were calling to me and so I went over and I and I was ready to grab one when suddenly I heard the melodious tone of my lovely bride say don't touch those they're for church and then she said I made a separate batch for you they're over there on that plate well I looked over and I saw a plate of filled with what looked like these dark rocks. And I said, "Uh, what's the idea with the burnt offering? And she said, they're the holy cookies. They're set aside for a specific purpose. You. So So when you think of holy, you could think of my poor cookies. They were set aside for me, a specific purpose. And that's what it means to be holy. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be conformed to our old nature, but we are to be transformed from the inside out. Transformation. The word metamorphosis is the English word from which we get that Greek word for transformation. It's the it's the word that describes that amazing process of the change of. Of nature when a, when a caterpillar turns into a beautiful butterfly. So we are to think uh, eternally. We are to think wholly. And how does that transformation take place? Well, it takes place by two steps. First, it takes place by the sanctification of the Spirit of God. We saw that early on in the introduction. And then secondly, it takes place by the transformation of the Word of God. We see this in verse 25. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so how do we become holy? By yielding to the Spirit of God... And by dwelling, by living in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way to the Colossians. He said, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that word dwell means to make it your home, to make it its abide. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, to be mastered in the process of day-by-day living by the Master's teaching. Then when we come to verse 18 through 21, uh, we see the third building block or, or pillar that Peter gives us as to how we can live godly lives in this junky world. And uh, thirdly, we are, pardon me, we are to think hopefully. We are to think hopefully. Let's, let's go back and read these verses Together, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And now here it is. Here's what it all is pointing to so that your faith and hope, your faith and hope are in God. We are to think eternally, we are to think holy, we are to think hopefully. The motivation that drives us is obedience and holiness. And notice what he says. He said, we have not been ransomed by um, the feudal things inherited from our forefathers, now, in the case of Peter's audience, he was probably referring to his Jewish readers who thought that they could have been ransomed by virtue of who they were. They were children of Abraham. And if they follow all the feast days, and if they do all of the, if they check off all of the boxes, that they would be uh, recipients of, of God's grace and, and would be taken into God's presence. But uh, Peter reminds them that that wasn't the basis of their acceptance, not, not by their feudal way of life. He said not by silver or gold either. Uh, that may have been a value for many, uh, but uh, silver or gold wasn't the basis of our being ransomed out of the slave market of sin. But Peter wrote, we have been ransomed, we have been rescued, we have been delivered by nothing else by nothing more, by nothing less than the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of our value to God, that it didn't take silver or gold, that it didn't take religious ritual and duty, but it took the the arrival, the suffering, and the death of his very own son without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness for sins you know when we read the Old Testament sometimes we may be uh, overcome by the fact that it seems like there are so many sacrifices throughout the pages of Scripture what is the fascination with blood well in a in a nutshell the blood is representative of the life. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. There can be no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, who was described by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, Jesus was the final sacrifice. Because we're told elsewhere that the, the sacrifice performed by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could never atone ultimately and be used for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. Rather, judgment was merely postponed for another year. God was merely satisfied for another year. That's why year by year the high priest had to perform this sacrifice. But when Jesus, our ultimate high priest, died on the cross, the writer of the Hebrews said that he sat down. There was never a chair in the Holy of Holies because the work of the high priest was never finished. He could never rest. He could never sit. But when Jesus performed his sacrifice on the cross, it was final, it was full, it was forever, and he sat down at the right hand of God, and it was nothing more or less than the precious blood of Jesus. That was the price of our ransom to be purchased out of the trade of the slave market of sin. We were ransomed with his precious blood, and never underestimated. Because of that precious blood and that precious blood which led to that death, Peter writes that God approved of it ultimately by raising him from the dead. We can have the assurance that not only is our sin forgiven, but the guilt of our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. As Charles Spurgeon used to say, There's not one payment for sin that a believer is going to be required to pay when he or she stands before God. Because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid for every sin. And Spurgeon went on to say that if God were to require you to make a payment for one sin, then God would require Two payments for one sin, and that, Spurgeon said, was heavenly injustice and impossible with God. And yet so often Satan reminds us of our shortcomings, reminds us of our faults, reminds us of our continual failures. Are you going to confess that sin again so that you're just going to commit it again in the future? And so often we listen to that, and that's where we need to understand that we can have a living and abiding hope. Listen, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. We've been bought with a price And we belong to him. And therefore, we can think hopefully, hopefully, knowing that at the revelation of Jesus, we're going to see his face and we're going to experience layer after layer of grace. And then fourthly and finally, see how we're doing time-wise here. Fourthly and finally, we are to think lovingly. We are to think lovingly. And it seems that the order here is is really pivotal to to our understanding. After we get into the routine of thinking eternally and thinking wholly and thinking hopefully, suddenly we could begin to take our focus off of ourselves and the current trials, the current tribulations, the current distresses, the current annoyances, the current difficulties, and then suddenly begin to turn our attention to others. This is what we see in, in verse 22. This is the fourth pillar of how to think correctly, how to think rightly so that we can live godly lives in a godless world. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. The Greek word there for love is the word from which we get Philadelphia. Okay? It's phileo. It's brotherly love. And then he continues, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And he uses a different Greek word there. He uses the, the word agape. So what Peter is saying is that we are, as we turn our attention on the things of the future, on that future hope, on that uh, glorious day-by-day day walking in holiness uh, in our in our spiritual pilgrimage, we could begin to turn our attention, not inwardly, but outwardly toward others, and how are we to behave toward one another, realizing that uh, our fellow brothers and sisters are going through their own trials and own period of testing. We are to love them as family members, with brotherly love, and then we are to love them genuinely, earnestly, with agape, which is often referred to as God's love. Agape love is a love of the will. It's I love you, period. It's not I love you because of. It's not I love you if, but rather it's I love you in spite of. As an act of my will, I choose to love you. And then I will display brotherly love toward you as an overflow of my choice. And this is the way we are commanded to love one another. We're to love one another sincerely. That is to say, genuinely. Not as a public display in order to gain uh, approval from others. But we are to love one another earnestly, earnestly, Peter writes. That's an athletic term. It means to strive with all of our energy. So the idea of loving one another implies the, the notion of work, of consistency, of commitment, of discipline. And we can love one another with this kind of love because we are living thinking along the lines of eternity, thinking along the lines of of holiness being set apart, not poured into the world's mold, but to be swimming upstream in a downstream world. And therefore, we can be living, hopefully, realizing that upon a day, we will see Jesus and we will experience that amazing transformation when the down payment, given to us by the Spirit of God at the moment of salvation, it finally is going to be met with the reality of paid in full, when we shall see him as he is. So this is the uh, encouragement that we have for this morning from Peter. And as I'm reflecting on our times in the world in which we live, I think this encouragement is just as needed uh, for us in our times uh, as as Peter's readers were experiencing uh, come what may in their times as well. Uh, We may not be uh, yet uh, illuminated to light uh, someone's garden, but as we go through this earthly pilgrimage, we we no, no doubt have experiences of, of struggle. We no doubt have experiences of, of uh, life that we need to trust God because there's nothing else that we could do. And yet sometimes this, this world pulls at us and tugs at us and, and uh, wants to frighten us. And yet if we keep an eye on the future, uh, we can think and walk and live victorious Christian lives. Again, not because of who we are, that we're pulling ourselves up by our spiritual uh, proverbial bootstraps, but because we've been bought with a price. We've been purchased out of the slave market of sin. We've been set free. We've been given the spirit of God as a down payment. And as we walk day by day thinking about that future revelation of Jesus when we will see him in all his glory. Peter reminds us that we can live not under the control of our circumstances, but we could live above our circumstances. And as a result of that, we can love one another genuinely and earnestly and honestly and sincerely um, because we realize the hope that we have in Christ.